But this morning we have a challenge before us in looking at three chapters in the book of Daniel. For most of the book of Daniel, we've really been going chapter by chapter, just breaking it off. It breaks apart very easily because of the stories and the visions that are within the book. And so it just kind of pieces apart very easily for us. Um, But the chapters 10 through 12 really encapsulate one final vision. And so we're going to look at that in one big lump together this morning. So the challenge before us is to look at three chapters in one sitting and getting out of here before 2 o'clock. I can at least, I'll promise you that. Okay, I promise you that. Before 2 o'clock, you'll be home. But the book of Daniel has been an extraordinary vision, a journey, hasn't it? You go back to the beginning of the book. And you see the people of Judah had been taken to this place called Babylon. And the text said that it was actually the Lord God who had delivered his people over to the Babylonians. He had given his people to them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the great king. And so from the very beginning of the book, the third verse in is a dazzling display of the sovereignty of God in the life of his people, not necessarily by protecting them, but by giving them over, by handing them over to the ruthless Babylonians. And so although this would at least appear to be a sign that God had lost, right, that his people were swept out of the land that he had promised them. It looks like God has lost something. He's lost at least the battle, right? But really what we end up seeing is that God never loses. As we look through the rest of the book of Daniel, we have seen that he has always been victorious and that everything that God allows to happen, even with the delivering of his people over to the Babylonians, is all because that is the way that he planned for it to happen. And so as the story continues, we run very quickly into this man named Daniel, who is apparently the author of the book and who this book is mostly about, along with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you remember that right from the beginning, that they were going to live a holy life. They were refusing to take the king's meat. They were refusing to drink the king's wine. And they had decided, we are going to eat, wa- or eat vegetables and drink water. We are going to abstain from the things of this world. And as it turned out, the Lord made it so that they were even healthier looking than all of the other servants that were within this kingdom. So God was sovereign over these young men, and he gave them his favor. As the book continues, remember that Nebuchadnezzar has this vision of a massive statue. And God gives Daniel the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And God is sovereign very clearly within the book of Daniel over the visions and the interpretations, the dreams, all that happens within Daniel. All of those visions and dreams are used for God's purposes. Daniel is promoted several times throughout the book under various reigns and kingdoms that come through Babylon, displaying again God's sovereignty over Daniel and his life, placing him into positions of power over and within these kings and kingdoms. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of course, you remember that they're thrown into the fiery furnace. They refuse to bow down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar has built. And for not doing that, he throws them into the furnace, which again, looks like it's going to be a defeat for God's people, ends up being an amazing victory. Remember that Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. He's a very old man at the time. Gets thrown into the lion's den. And again, this very godly man, it looks like he's going to be ruined. He's going to be killed by these lions. And it turns out to be a great victory for the Lord yet again. And these kings are responding that Daniel's God is the true God. The latter half of the book has been filled with information about what was going to happen in the future about several hundred years um, after Daniel. 
And we can read in the history book the answers to the visions in the book of Daniel. God is sovereign over the history of the earth. So if it isn't clear to you by now, or it hasn't been clear to you for the several months that we've been in the book of Daniel, it should be by now. The book of Daniel is a clear display of the sovereignty of God over all things and a display that God always wins. Everything always turns out the way that God wants it to turn out because he has planned that it would turn out that way. Thus, God always, always, always wins. So the lives of his children... The pagan kings of the earth. What is going to be coming in the future. All of it is in the hand of Daniel's almighty sovereign God. And so at the end of the book now. We've got to step out and say to ourselves. That not only is this true in the life of Daniel. But this is true of us as well. That our God is the same God as Daniel's, And he has not changed. And he cannot change. Therefore, God is sovereign over your life. He is sovereign over your situations with your family and in your work and in the church and on and on. He has ordained the beginning, the middle, and the end, and God will never lose. And so how does the end of the book come? What happens? As you'd expect with the display of our sovereign God throughout this entire book, the end must display what has been seen all along. He is sovereign And he is victorious, which is the title of the sermon this morning. Our God is victorious. He is the victorious God. And so what I want to do this morning is give you an overview of these chapters and then really drive home some application throughout these several chapters. Chapter 10 is a remarkable chapter of vision and spiritual warfare. But I want you to notice something very interesting, even within the first verse. Look at Daniel chapter 10, specifically in verse 1. It says these words in the third year of Cyrus In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, why would that be important for us to think about? It's the third year of Cyrus's reign. Daniel has been in Babylon since he was a teenager. He's been there for decades by this point. He was deported there from his homeland. He's now an old man in the third year of King Cyrus, having lived his entire life in the land of Babylon. You remember how we would pray toward the city of Jerusalem. You can imagine how his heart must have longed to go back home before he died. But it's the third year of King Cyrus. In the book of Ezra, we know that something very significant happened in the first year of King Cyrus. And what was that? That the Lord had begun stirring within Cyrus to let the people go back to their land and to begin the rebuilding process. That happened in the first year of King Cyrus. And so it has been two years since that point where the Jews had begun to go back and to rebuild their walls, to rebuild their temple, and all of those things. And so although it felt like this massive loss for the people of God to be deported to Babylon and to spend over 70 years there, and for you remember that the the temple cups and the bowls, the gold and the silver, was all brought to Babylon, that felt like a massive loss for them. In the first year of Cyrus, the book of Ezra tells us that the people begin going back and they go back with their temple cups and bowls. But this was again two years before this moment in Daniel 10 verse 1. And so from what we can tell, the Bible does not explicitly tell us, but what we can at least derive is that Daniel does not go back home. He stays in Babylon. 
And although that may sound sad, that the poor old man would never go home again, the reality for Daniel would have been that this world would not and could not ever be his home anyway. In an ultimate sense, the city of Jerusalem would not be and could not be Daniel's home any more than Babylon was Daniel's home. Because home for Daniel would have been to be wherever God was. And in an earthly perspective, I think that's important for us to keep in mind that Daniel is an old man that the Lord had used for the entirety of his life and it would come time for the baton to pass. That's the case for all of us. It's the same for me. Count Zinzendorf once said, Count Zinzendorf, say that 20 times fast. Count Zinzendorf has said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That is the task of a minister. Preach the gospel while the Lord has you and, and, and you're serving in that capacity. Die, but you'll be forgotten. And that's okay. That is good, and that is the natural process. This is how the kingdom of God continues to advance. That he uses his soldiers, he uses those within the warfare to fight the battle, to do the work in the fields and all of the rest. But then we pass the baton and we move on to glory, and it's for the next generation to take it up. You remember even Moses. Moses doesn't go into the promised land, does he? But who does? The baton gets passed to Joshua, and Joshua leads the people into the land the conquest, and so would be the same for Daniel. With leaders, like we're going to be looking at next week, with Nehemiah and Ezra leading the people to build the walls, leading the people spiritually as Ezra reads the law of God to the people, new leaders were being raised up. Daniel had fought the good fight, and it appears as though he would die in Babylon. But he's not put out to pasture quite yet. There's still some time, there's still some work for Daniel to do in his old age. And so as some of the people are beginning to make their way back to Jerusalem and rebuilding their great city and the temple and the walls and all of the rest, Daniel would remain in the city of Babylon, yet he would still be used by the Lord. I like to think of this like a movie scene or maybe a real life war story where you, you have that really brave two or three people and they, they stay behind providing cover while 20 or 30 people you know, can get away and then they end up, of course, dying there. Right? So they're, they're providing that cover while the rest are able to get away. This is what Daniel's doing. He's providing cover. He's praying. He's fasting. He's praying for the people of God as they are going back, or even in their negligence, maybe not wanting to go back through the land. But he's praying for them. And all of this spiritual warfare is going on. And so as the people are going back, he stays and does the spiritual work. Look with me at verse 2 in chapter 10. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all. For the full three weeks, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And so Daniel is in this time of mourning, and we're not told. But it's likely because, again, the people were being obstinate about going back to the land. And so Daniel wasn't eating anything. He wasn't anointing himself with oil. So as he's standing by that great Tigris River, which of course still exists, he looks up and he sees this 
being before him, clothed in white linen, wearing a belt of gold, a face of lightning, eyes like flaming torches, and his voice sounded like a multitude. So as this vision is happening, all of the men who are with Daniel scatter. Although the text says that they can't see what's going on, but yet they run anyway. So this is so fantastic, whatever Daniel is seeing, that although the others cannot see it, they run away anyway. And the vision causes Daniel to lose all of his strength in light of it, and he falls to the ground in this coma-like sleep state with his face literally to the ground. For the record, I do lean toward this being Christophany. I do think that this is probably a vision of Christ that Daniel is seeing. It's argued back and forth, whether it's Christ or an angel. You just don't see this kind of reaction toward angels in the rest of the text. But you see it here. There's, there's something magnificent about this one who was before Daniel. I haven't seen the movie yet, but that new movie that came out, I can only imagine. And if I understand it right, it's about the story of the author and his father and so forth. Um, about the song I can only imagine and how that song came to be. But there's all of these questions within the the song. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. And you imagine what that would be like for you to stand before God or to have this kind of vision of Christ that Daniel has here. I think we get a sense of what it would be like to stand before the Lord in our unglorified state by seeing Daniel and his reaction to this vision here. He falls to the ground and he loses his strength. Like if Jesus were to present himself now in a vision to all of us here and now, I think all of us would be faced First, onto the ground in that coma-like state. As human beings, we cannot absorb that kind of a glorious sight. We can't do it. To, To see the Christ, to see the Son of God, would not be like seeing an old friend. Our casual understanding and thoughts concerning Christ are far from the dazzling, fearful display that Jesus is. I mean, you remember, uh, maybe some of you remember those t-shirts that would say, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is nobody's homeboy. Jesus is God. He's radiant. He's above everybody and everything. By Him, all things are created. By Him, everything consists and stays together. And at the name of Jesus, every single knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So you want to see Jesus? The unsaved people say, well, Jesus just has to reveal Himself to me and then I'll believe in Jesus. If Jesus revealed Himself to you, you'd die. The same true for all of us. If we saw the living, raised Christ, we would fall flat on our face. Upon all of this happening, again, all of the men scatter. The text says they can't see it, but they know something has happened and they're hiding themselves. Daniel is left in his weakness. Verse 15 says that Daniel is utterly mute. He can't even speak. His face is turned to the ground and he clearly says he has no strength. And no breath left in him. You want to know what it would be like to see Jesus? That's what it would produce in you. This is the kind of reaction that seeing Jesus would give. But look at verse 18. 
Again, one having the appearance of a man. And I think this transitions now to, to angels. I think we've transitioned. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So what Daniel is experiencing within this chapter, although seen in a very tangible way, is spiritual warfare. You can imagine, as the people are making their way back to the land, that Satan is going to put up a fight. That Satan isn't just going to roll over and let all of this happen. And Daniel is contending for his people and fasting and prayer, and is having this experience with Christ, and he's utterly spent, he's exhausted, he's fatigued, but this one comes and touches him and strengthens him. This angel comes and strengthens him and tells him that those words that must have been so encouraging to Daniel in this time of struggle, you are greatly loved. And we saw this a couple chapters ago. Daniel, you are greatly loved. To have an angel from the presence of God come down and tell you in your weakness to strengthen you and to say, you're loved. Loved by who? God. Sometimes it feels like when the spiritual warfare is particularly strong, that God doesn't love us. Like, that's why we're experiencing spiritual warfare. Because he doesn't love us so much in those moments. Because God's not really looking out for us all that well. But that's not true. Daniel would have to face spiritual warfare. You and I, because of where we are in the history of the world right now, we will have to face spiritual warfare. But just because we are constantly waging in the battle does not mean that our king and commander does not love us. Like Daniel, we are loved as those who are in Christ. And so it's with the reinforcement of the fact that God loves us that we enter into the battle. It is with the truth, the knowledge that God loves us and is ultimately empowering us by His Holy Spirit. And this is how we are enabled to do it, to to take up the armor of God as the church, as individuals within it, to go and to fight. Well, what does Paul say within Ephesians chapter 6? He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and in heavenly places. The battle line is drawn somewhere between what we can see and what we can't see. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you like Daniel, who is an old but consistent man here, to continue in the battle and to not give up. Do not give up. How often are we seeing Christians who have apparently tired of the battle, and they've given in. I know you feel this. I know that you know people who, after years of seeming consistency following the Lord, have given into their passions. I was just talking with somebody the other day on the phone, and they called me, and they were basically just like, Brandon, I can't believe this happened. Somebody basically that I know and have respected has fallen into adultery after years and years of living for the Lord, apparently. Brothers and sisters, the roaring lion is still at play. But don't give in. Pray. Daniel's doing. Pray. Fast. Bury yourself in God's word. Beseech the Lord and ask for strength. He will give it to you. You are greatly loved by by, by, by God, like Daniel. And in light of that love, what does he tell Daniel to do? Verse 19 again. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. So what is the basis for not having fear in the battle? You're greatly loved. 
What's the basis for being able to have peace within your life? You are greatly loved. What's the basis for, for being told you be strong and be of good courage? I love you. And you think of young dating relationships and maybe some of your marriages, I hope, where it's like, I could just go to the end of the earth because she loves me, right? Well, we can go into the spiritual battle. We can fight. We can go into that war and we can succeed and with, under the power of the Holy Spirit because we know he loves us. That the spiritual warfare is not, is, is not to hurt you. It's not to harm you. It's to refine you. This is good. This is what God has for us. And we go and we do not fear and we can have peace and we can be strong and have, have good courage because he loves us. And so within chapter 10, we get a glimpse of what it was like for Daniel to have this vision and everything that surrounded it with the spiritual warfare that he had to deal with. But in chapter 11, things get very specific and complicated as the Lord reveals to Daniel what would happen several hundred years from that moment in time. So chapter 11 is, again, very difficult and and, and hard to really keep straight to the point where I read one commentator. He was quoting somebody else, and he said that there can be no sermon or sermons preached on Daniel 11. It's that hard and intricate of a passage that really you can't preach the thing. But we'll try a little bit here. Uh, There's a lot of information that I believe is prophetic in what is going on in the second century BC. So this is written, I was mentioning this in Sunday school this morning, Daniel is written in the sixth century BC. I think what is going on is the second century BC information is being referred to here. So a couple hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene, it is dictated what's going to happen militarily in this place um, and within these Kings of the north and the south, which if you look at Daniel 11, probably many of you have a little caption that says the kings of the south and the north or something like that within your Bible. But we need to ask ourselves, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, what are they north and south of? Like when you consider our own history in the Civil War, you have the north and the south. Well, north and south of what? And I guess symbolically it probably be the Mason-Dixon line. But north and south of that. So within this text, you have the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And what is in the middle? Verse 16 in chapter 11 says, But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. And so you have the kings to the north, the kings of the south, and in the middle is the glorious land of Israel. And so to the south would be the Ptolemies of Egypt. To the north would be the Seleucids of Syria. And the vision goes on to display the ups and the downs of the various kings involved within these two kingdoms and what's going to happen between them. And you can quite literally read the history books. And if you want some material, I can, I can give it to you. With Daniel chapter 11 and who the kings are to the north and the south and how all of that eventually gets arranged and how all of that works out within history, it's incredible to where the point where liberal commentators have said, this just can't be, Daniel could not have been written in the 6th century because it so perfectly describes what ends up happening several hundred years after. And so that's why liberal commentators will often say, no, it could not, it must have been written in the second century because it is so close, exactly close to what happened. 
But all of what eventually Daniel 11 pushes forward to is a character named Antiochus Epiphanes. And we saw Antiochus several chapters ago. That this wicked ruler would come and he would slaughter many, many Jews. He would set up the temple to worship the Greek god Zeus. So within the temple of God, he would set up a statue to Zeus and he would even slaughter a pig in the temple, and of course the Jews don't eat pigs. So again, he was defaming the temple of God, knowing that the Jews viewed the pigs as unclean. He refused to allow them to be circumcised, which was a Jewish practice, or have their Sabbath day, which was a Jewish practice. Antiochus was the worst of the worst when it came to the Jews. He was really the Hitler of his time, and he was a wicked and vile man. But then beyond Antiochus, Many people believe that verses 40 to 45 in chapter 11 are in reference still to a future, future Antichrist that has yet to come onto the scene. So the scriptures do seem to teach that in the end, there will be some sort of figure, some sort of man of lawlessness, some sort of Antichrist, and he would be just that. He would be the Antichrist. But it seems also to figure that there will be many who will carry the spirit of Antichrist. So I think Antiochus would embody the spirit of the Antichrist, although he would not ultimately be the Antichrist. And this is actually what the Apostle Paul reminds us of in his letter when he says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. And so it has been the last hour for the last 2,000 years. We still await the coming, the second coming of Jesus. But until then, there are going to be many antichrists who carry the spirit of antichrist, who are quite literally antichrists themselves. And ultimately, there will be apparently one great antichrist who will do a lot of damage. But then chapter 11 closes with encouragement. That this one who would come into the future, this Antichrist, whoever he is, he would do whatever he wanted to do, and all of this destruction, yet he would meet his end. Look at chapter 11 in the, last, the very last verse of chapter 11, verse 45. And he shall pitch his paladil tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. The Antichrist will come to his end. So in other words, God wins. God wins, right? Kings to the north, kings to the south, the glorious land in the middle, Antiochus Epiphanes, destroying all kinds of things, sacrificing a pig in the temple, all of this terrible stuff happening, a future Antichrist who is going to make a terrible situation for believers. But it's take hope time. Because God wins. He always wins. The Antichrist, verse 45, he will come to his end. And nobody will be able to help him, this says. So he's going to be brought low. He'll come to his end. And so it's don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what's going to come, Christian. I think some Christians really get wigged out when you start talking about the end, the end times. I remember having a conversation with somebody once and they were telling me how the end times and all of, all of that stuff kind of scares them. And I think a lot of that happens because there's been a lot of fictitious stuff written about the end times. And so it does kind of make it a little freaky. I remember when I was younger and one of my Bible teachers saying to me uh, in, in, in high school, he was like, yeah, you know, the rapture's probably going to happen before all you guys are able to get married. So, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I'm high school. I want to get married. Like, I want to have kids and all that kind of thing. And now I'm like, Lord Jesus, come. I don't want my kids to live in this world. But that's kind of the way it works, isn't it? But the end times, they should not be scary. 
Because God has told us hard times are going to come. But it's going to come to its end. There will be an end to all of this that happens. So although we do have hope and we should have confidence as Christians, all the vision continues into the Daniel chapter 12 and the evidence is clear that there will be a time of testing and waiting. And this is the reality for all of us even now, isn't it? That what was true for Daniel is true for us. That God has made his promises. He has made clear that difficult times will come. But he also makes it clear that under his sovereign hand, everything will turn out according to plan. Look at Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen or been since there was a nation till that time. You often hear that all good things must come to an end. But that's not always going to be true. A day is coming where it will be nothing but good things. But the reverse is true. That all bad things one day will come to an end. We are in a time of trouble now in our own world. Like the world is messed up seriously. I mean, don't you feel it within your bones how how the way things are is not the way that things are supposed to be. And I'm not talking about uh, what political party you align with as much as I'm talking about the, the, the injustice within the world. Babies being killed. The sex trafficking that is trafficking that's going on all over the world. And you see, I mean, terrible terrible things that are happening right now but all of that is going to end that even within your own life the mountains of sorrows and the pain that you feel physically and the pain that you feel spiritually mentally whatever it is all of your mountains of sorrows that you experience in this life all of it reminds us that things are not the way that they should be That what we experience in regard to sin and the issues within this world is not what Adam and Eve initially experienced within the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve and their state within the Garden shows us that that was the way it was supposed to look like. It was supposed to be perfect. It was supposed to be no marital conflict. It was supposed to be walking with God in the cool of the day. But now we have the struggle. That sin has made its way in and it has creeped into all of us. And all who are born in Adam are born into sin. But one day, God is going to purify the earth with fire. That one day, and even now, God is in the process of making all things new. That he is going to rid all of the decay. The first time he destroyed the earth with Noah and the flood, he destroyed the earth with water. The second time he destroys the earth, it's going to be with fire. And he will create a new heavens and a new earth. Listen to these encouraging words from Isaiah 65. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The formal things, former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Revelation 21 describes this place as well as the place that we will dwell with God. Garden of Eden was that place where they would walk with God in the cool of the day. That was Becky. That was not anything spiritual. (laughs) 
But Revelation describes this. That in a sense, we're going to get back to that. Where God and man now residing together, dwelling with one another. It says in verse 1 of Daniel that all those whose name is written in the book will be delivered. In Revelation 21, it closes with the same truth. You read Revelation 21, the very last verse says that those who will enter this place are those who have been written in the Lamb's book of life. Isn't this wonderful? We live in trials and tribulations now. And they will continue until the time of the coming of Christ. And after that, we will be forever with the Lord in splendor and in beauty for all of those who have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And you say, well, I wonder if my name is in the Lamb's book of life. How can you know that? How can you know that without taking the book and opening it and saying, oh, great, kind of like D-D-D-D-Y-D-I-Y-E-R. Okay, good, I'm in there. Good, safe. How can you know? Do you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Do you trust in the work of Christ in his death and his resurrection for you? And that's all you hold to is the work of Christ? You don't hold to your own works? Is his name the name that you confess if it is and you have genuine faith and trust in the name of Jesus, in Christ himself? You can be sure that your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. And if it is there, then you will be in this place forever. And so the question now is, well, how long? How long until these things are? You can see that in Daniel 12, verse 6. He says, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And although the answer seems unclear, the response is a time, times, and half a time. And then it says 1,290 days. And although that feels vague to us and people speculate on what those days actually represent, the reality is, again, that it doesn't matter. What matters is that God knows. God knows how much time is left. And as each day passes, the time is ticking more and more until the day where the clouds open and Jesus himself ascends. And when we will forever be with the Lord, God knows when that will be. I think the proper way to close this section and the proper way to close this book is to remember that, like Daniel, we're in Babylon. We're in a place that is ultimately not our home. That new heavens and new earth, ultimately, that's the place where we will be forever. And if your name is in the book of life, your home is in glory. You will eternally be in the new heavens and the new earth, serving and worshiping God for all of eternity. But although that is our coming home, we have a very real responsibility now. There is spiritual warfare now. Ultimately, Daniel would go and be with the Lord, but he had a job to do now in that moment to pray, to read God's word, to raise our kids in a godly manner, to work in our respective fields and jobs as Christians seeking to honor God with our work. The Bible says that our life is a vapor. What awaits for us is eternal And one day our bodies will rise from the earth, like he explains, or how it's mentioned here in chapter 12. Our bodies will rise from the earth and we will be glorified and we'll be unified back with our soul along with Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and maybe Nebuchadnezzar too. And we will all forever be with the Lord together. And this is our hope. Let's pray.
Lord, in our life right now, we have tremendous hope that there's that current reality that we understand now as those who are in Christ, even though in a sense we cannot understand it, but you love us. But then we also understand that the future holds something far better than what we could ever imagine. That what you have for us in that new heavens and new earth to dwell with you, to see you, to see the face of Christ. If that were to happen now, we would be flat on our face. 